0: So good morning, everybody. If you'll look in your bulletin at your Ephesians passage, we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. I don't know if you've had this experience. Maybe it's just me from traveling all the time. But if you haven't had the experience, you can picture it easily. Uh, you know, you, you get to an airport and you hustle off the plane and you hustle down to get your bag if you got one and hustle to the uh, rental car counter. And this was especially true before the days of GPS and, you know, you get in the car and you just start heading down the road, just totally cheerfully confident that you're heading in the right direction. Only to find out uh, that what seemed intuitively right to you is actually not right. Like Debbie and I used to live in the Virginia beach area, sometimes called tidewater or Hampton roads or whatever. And interstate 64 runs through that area. And right there in Tidewater, it runs north and south, but it says east and west. And so even after we lived there for years, you would get on that freeway just wondering, is this the right way? It it, it seems intuitively right, but is it actually the right way? Am I actually going the right way? And this is the kind of mental imagery that I think Paul wants us to have as we look at these few verses this morning. In internal to this to these verses is this notion of how we walk and walk is just kind of an ancient way of thinking about one's manner of life, how it is that one's carrying out their life, how they choose it, how they become confident that it's right, how it gets attached to really deep desires and aspirations that, again, we intuitively feel that we have to follow, especially today. We feel like if we don't intuitively follow the things that seems most uh, deep and profound to us, then we're not keeping it real. So the big value today is keeping it real. Okay, fair enough, except for what if what's real about us, what if what's most real about us is broken? What if is what what if what's most real about us, though it seems intuitively right to us, we're actually on the wrong road? And this is what Paul's wanting us to think about this morning, that that just because something feels right, and just because it's a road well-traveled, so just think today of all the sinful roads that are well-traveled. And so now you have this well-traveled road, a lot of people going down this road. It's not some weird little, you know, dark country road at night, well-lit, a lot of people going down this road. This road feels intuitively right to me. And so then we come to the conclusion that that then gives us a kind of confidence that this must be right. But if you look at your text, Paul says that all of us at one time were disobedient. And we were disobedient in several ways. And here's the ways he lays out. First of all, he says we were disobedient in the way in which we used to live. And this is that notion of our walk, our manner of living. Paul's saying there was a way in which we used to try to keep step with things that actually made us disobedient. Secondly, he says you were disobedient in that you followed the ways of this world, which is to say for Paul that we let the world tell us how to live. That is to say we intuitively took on its ethics, its values, you know, values meaning The kind of things that kind of undergird our lives without us thinking about them. We let the world teach us our priorities, what should be first or second or third in life. We let the world teach us practices. The world, in Pauline's sense, developed urges in us and taught us to act on them. Now, I just want to show you the way this works. When I think of my childhood, for some reason, well, actually, my young adulthood, One of the biggest memories in my life is I wanted a Porsche really bad. I don't know why. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, I wanted this black Corvette that was at a gas station on the corner of 17th and Bristol in Santa Ana in about 1973. But if you know anything about Corvettes of the 60s, they were made of fiberglass. And my dad wouldn't let me get it because it was fiberglass. He He was sure I'd kill myself. So I switched to Porsche. And I wanted this Porsche so bad that when I was like 17 years old, a junior in high school, I started working at the post office in Santa Ana, sorting flats and sometimes envelopes. I would get up at four o'clock in the morning before school, go sort mail for three or four hours, go to school, play baseball after school, go home, go to bed, do the same thing all over again because I wanted that Porsche so bad and I got it. I earned the money. I mean, back in the day, I was making like six bucks an hour. Well, in 1973, that was a ton of dough. And I saved it the money and I got my Porsche. Well, all of a sudden, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or what, but I see Porsches everywhere. And I could never with a straight face like drive up to church in a brand new, you know, uh, you know, Porsche 911 S. But if I could, I would. I can <laughs> tell you how fast it goes from zero to 60. And every time I see one, it's like this. Urge, and I'm thinking, what? I, I, like, I would never really do it. I couldn't do it with a clear conscience. But all Paul's saying the world around us, it does two things. It develops urges in us, and it teaches us that if you're really keeping it real, you'll follow that urge. Now I could actually do it. I hadn't had this thought till just this moment. I could say to our daughter, Carol, "Sorry, you can't go to Chapman the next couple of years. Dad needs a Porsche." actually, I could do that. But you see, but that assumes that me following what feels so real to me is the right thing to do. And this is what Paul wants us to look at. So he says another way that we were disobedient, if you look at your text, is that we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And Paul wants us to see that this thing that's going on in us isn't passive. It's an active, intentional decision we chose to follow such that right at the heart of conversion is the question, who are you following? Right at the heart of conversion is not so much the question, what do you believe in? Like, give me your top little four or five little bits of of uh, theological data that you believe in. That's important, but it's not core. What's core is, who are you following? Are you following the urges that the world says we should follow? or the ruler of the spirit of the air, or are we following Jesus? When Jesus said, come follow me, that was not an invitation to a way of believing fundamentally. It was fundamentally an invitation to a walk, a manner of living. If Jesus says, follow me, follow implies that he's going somewhere. It implies movement, which then implies if we're going to go, we're moving with him. See, that's a manner of living. It's a walk. It's not merely something that happens in our head. So we see how this deceiving, wooing role of the devil works in our reading from Genesis this morning, where the woman said, The serpent deceived and seduced me. Period. No. The, 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 the devil seduced me and wooed me and deceived me, and I ate. Not I believed something that was wrong, I ate. I followed what he was suggesting. And so when Jesus says, come follow me, he's asking us to lay down every other loyalty. He's asking us to lay down every other road that we could be on and follow him in the way that he's on. So our reading in the gospel this morning taught us that here's the crisis we're really in. God light has streamed into the world through Jesus, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They made their decisions. Giving into, as you see in your text, Paul says, the cravings, actually gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature. And the sinful nature just simply means a life dominated by the longings and impulsions and passions of a self-oriented life. And again, it would be me like every time I go down PCH and I see that Porsche dealer, you know, can you picture it? I mean, I could just like pull in there and say, I don't really have the money, but can I just lease it? Can you just, what, what would it take to get me off this lot with that car? You know, is there any way we can make the numbers work here? Well, that's, that's what Paul means. This isn't sins. Sins are, when you see the word sins in the Bible, that, that means particularity. That means, you know, individual things that we do. When you see the word sinful nature, it's talking about actually a life that's dominated by one's impulses and passions. It means a basic kind of self-oriented life. Next, Paul says, "We're following our desires and thoughts." Um, I, I should say a word here, but I can only say a word. Um, but there' was a brilliant new book out recently on temptation. It's called "Our Favorite Sins." <laughs> and, uh, and in that book, the author talks about how it is that desires and temptation and the thoughts of our minds work, and how it is that one cannot be tempted. Unless one has a pre-existing desire for the thing presenting itself to you. The way to deal with temptation is not through some sort of muscled up, tense, tight. I'm not going to do this thing. As long as you have the desire for that thing, you're at least weak, if not toast. The key to temptation is switching our desires. So that I actually do desire my daughter becoming the person I think God's calling her to be more than I desire my my having a Porsche. See, it's all about controlling your desires. I'm still going to notice those cars every time I drive by. Or you've heard, you know, we heard this all the time in the workplace, school, whatever. You know, I just love her. I just love him so much. You know, I just have to have him. And so people will cross all kinds of barriers to have that. Well, what if what's real is not that you love her or him too much? What if what's real is you don't love them enough? You don't love them enough to not ruin their marriage and their family. You don't you don't love them enough to not simply be using them for your own gratifications. And so it's all about really uh, controlling and, and changing our desires through the process of spiritual formation. So Paul says, then again, if you look at your text, that so we're we're following the Spirit. That's at work in those who are presently disobedient. And this alerts us to the outward societal dimension of what's happening. It's sort of like up to now, Paul seems like he's kind of talking to us. And now we hear that there's this spirit that's at work sort of in the world, those who are presently disobedient. And the problem here is right now today, and I think you'll all feel this. The problem is that we live in a time that is really radically relativistic. And there's no point... Beaten on that, it's like spitting in the wind, it's not going to go away, it's just here, it's not going anywhere. And so it leaves us with the problem how do you know what disobedience is in a world that can't decide on what is is? Are you feeling me here? I mean, in a world that literally can't even agree on what is is, it gets very hard to agree on what is disobedient. So Paul says that our disobedience. Um, Evidenced by following the ruler and the spirit of this age has led us to be, as you see in your passage, people who are dead in transgressions and sins. Now, transgressions usually means uh, a breaking of the law. But here in this case, Paul means something more like the kind of slipping or sliding or falling away from what we know to be true or right. Sin, of course, means here to miss the mark and to be dead means to be what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. It means to be cut off from the life of God and that when we're cut off by the life of God, Paul says that by nature, we're objects of wrath. We are objects of the displeasure of God. Well, we can stop right here. And it's almost as if Paul is being a prosecuting attorney and stop and say, well, what does all this prosecuting talk lead to? And if you look at your passage, it leads to this God broken that because of God's love and grace and mercy, Paul says, when we were dead in sin by grace, we were saved. So let's look at this. These these words, love, mercy, grace that you find in your passage, these reveal God's character. So you need to catch this. Like if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, you need to hear this. When you picture in your imagination Jesus on the cross and saying these words, Father, forgive them. Was he being true to his nature? Or was he saying that through gritted teeth? Like, damn the little buggers, but, you know, <laughs> this really ticks me off. Like, or was he saying it because he thought that, you know, the, the gospel writers would record it someday and we could make a song out of it. Or was he actually being true to his nature? Was he actually the revelation of God who is by nature love and grace and mercy? Was that like a hard thing for Jesus to say? Do you think it took, he had to take like weeks of, you know, working on it to, you know, sort of rehearse it and get ready to say it when the time came? Or do you suppose, and this is so important for what you'll do with God. This gets right at the heart of how you relate to God. I mean, without even knowing all of you intimately, I can just tell you this is the truth. Do you believe that that's what's just actually fundamental to his nature? And so it's what just sort of dripped out of him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So love is an active for our good longing in the heart of God for humanity. Mercy is just the active demonstration of that love. And grace, I love the way my friend Dallas gets it, that grace is simply God acting in our lives to bring about what we don't deserve and cannot achieve on our own. That's what grace is. Grace just sort of brings into our life all the things that we don't deserve and all the things that we can't achieve on our own. This is why it's so important when Paul says, when you were dead. See, grace is not all that important unless you're dead and you can't achieve anything on your own. Well, then grace comes into the picture. And again, the Genesis story tells us this morning about this spiritual death where Eve's told, don't eat the fruit of this tree or you will die. So is Adam. But they did so. And so then God banishes them from the Garden of Eden. And what this story, among other things, what this story, I think for Paul, the way this story works and the logic of his writing here is something like this, the spiritual death is meant to convey that the most vital part of our humanity, spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, God. Let me say that again. When Paul alludes to spiritual death and thinking of a story like the story in Genesis, it's meant to convey to us that the most important part of us, that we are uh, never ceasing spiritual beings, is cut off from the most important factor of life, which is the activity of God. But Paul says, when we were dead by grace, we were saved. I love the way Eugene gets it in the message that God took our sin dead lives and made us alive in Christ. And he did all this on his own with no help from us. That's the notion of grace. And the idea here for Paul is that we're utterly powerless to do anything about our condition. And this is why notions like you know, grace as we're considering it is so important because saved in the New Testament um, doesn't primarily mean go to heaven when you die. It includes that. But primarily what it means is rescue. That's what's underneath the notion of the biblical word saved. It means to be rescued from a desperate place. You're stuck on the wrong road. You're stuck in wrong thinking. You actually intuitively think you're on the right road, but you're stuck. It's like being Uh, The biblical notion would be like being stuck up to your neck in quicksand or being uh, coiled by a boa constrictor or something. You're helpless. You can't do anything, but God saves us. You know what what a lot of scholars call what we just went over? Romans and a half a paragraph. I mean, this is about as deep and complex theology as you can possibly wade into in 20 minutes. So let's think about this. How can we make this work? What's the sort of practical theology here? Well, I think it's something like this. In an effort to walk our own way and doing so in harmony with the ruler and the spirit of this age, I was thinking this weekend after 50 years, like think of the early 60s up to today, after 50 years of challenging and deconstructing everything, families aren't more happy or solid. Women aren't happy as a whole. Men, to my knowledge, are more stressed and under extreme strain than ever. Minorities and the poor aren't flourishing. The sexual revolution over-promised and underdelivered. People today aren't happy with jobs, wages, tax structures, politics, education, or new ideas about religion. After 50 years of taking this new road, of literally challenging and deconstructing everything... Maybe we need to stop and say, maybe we need to tell each other a new story. Maybe we need to think about this. The human life in the intention of God is nothing like we thought. As it turns out, if we take Jesus as God's demonstration of what human life is meant to be like, it turns out that human life is meant to be deeply self-sacrificial. Which is why one passes whatever the Porsche dealer is in your life. That's why one becomes the kind of person who could and would pass it up, because fundamentally life is self-sacrificial. So Paul's saying, simply following the desires of the mind, the emotion of the body, it leads to ruin every time. But so what if one even recognizes this? What if one sees that they're already on the wrong road, on the fast death, fast road to death? What can you do about it? You're stuck. You're like in a boa constrictor. And Paul's answer, and we'll get into this more next week when we get in more about grace, is to receive this amazing salvation. Because even think of just right now, think of friends and family, people you care about who, who aren't following Jesus, who are on the wrong road. Here's what you need to know. Man hid. But God said, where are you? I want to be with you. And this, of course, prefigures, you know, the parable, the prodigal waiting father. We think of the prodigal son, the father waiting afternoon, 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 waiting to see if his son would come back. Our gospel reading this morning told us that God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. This is what the story of Jonah and Nineveh means. It's not about somebody who got swallowed by a fish. It's about how it was stunning. No one would have ever believed that God would have reached out to Nineveh. They were legendary for their sinfulness and of being on the wrong road. Or think of the New Testament parable of this steward forgiving somebody who owed a debt of 10,000 talents. That was an unthinkable sum of money in first century Palestine. It would be like us saying somebody who owed a hundred trillion dollars. I mean, we can't even think of what that is. And God forgave it. This is the notion that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So as we turn now to a quiet moment before we confess our common faith together, Maybe we could just sit quietly for a moment with this question. Where have I been cheerfully on the wrong road? But lately getting some gut checks, some instincts that something's incorrect. Where have I been cheerfully on the wrong road? But getting some new intuitions that maybe something is incorrect. Amen.